The fox had learned the meaning of many human words, and he heard him use one of them now. No! Often the no word was linked to one of the two names he knew, his own and his boy's. He listened carefully, but today it was just the no, pleaded to the father over and over. I am going to read aloud packs for the very first time in my life, and I'm so excited to jump in and, for lack of a better way to say it, punch my students in the stomach the very first day of school with that amazing first chapter. The father reached over the seat again, and after saying something to his son in a soft voice that didn't match his hard lie scent, he grasped the fox by the scruff of the neck. His boy did not resist, so the fox did not resist. He hung limp and vulnerable in the man's grasp, although he was now frightened enough to nip. He would not displease his humans today. I'm Nicole Wills, and today we're talking about Pax by Sarah Pennypacker, published by HarperCollins in 2016. If you've read Pax, you know that these lines are about Peter, a young boy displaced by war. When he moves to his grandfather's house, Peter is forced to give up his beloved pet fox, the eponymous Pax. Like Peter, Colby Sharp's fifth graders will be arriving at school in Parma, Michigan, facing their own significant challenges. They've been in a pandemic. They've been in and out of school. Mr. Sharp is a big literacy advocate. I don't know what reading has been like for all of them, but I'm not messing around this year. We're going to jump in and we're going to go for it. And we're going to do it with this boy and his fox. It's going to break their heart. It's going to put it back together. It's going to do all kinds of magical things. Pax is just a fox, and he, he didn't get taught to live in the wild. This is Emma. She's the daughter of one of our producers. I just didn't like that they had to throw away Pax. I liked how the boy went back to save the fox. It was very brave. I would have done that, too. And I also really liked um, the little playful cup, Runt. In that opening scene, Peter throws a toy in the woods, and before Pax can return it to him like they've always done before, Peter and his dad are already in the car driving away. That scene, Sarah Pennypacker says, turned out to be more of a gut punch than she intended. She learned its impact after she read it to a classroom of fourth graders before the book was published. And I just said, what's Pax's motivation here? What does he want? What does he know he wants? And I said, okay, goodbye. I'm going to the next classroom. And the teacher stopped me at the door and she said, wait, you can't leave. And she said, look at them. And I looked and some of them were crying and some had their head down. And she was right. It was more devastating than I thought. I thought that by in not having it be a child be abandoned, that they could handle it better and they would just be, you know, hands on hips saying, okay, go back and get that fox. And they'd be a little outraged, but not that upset. But then I learned for some kids, when it happens to an animal and you can't explain it, it's worse. I made some changes to the book and it certainly informed me as I wrote the sequel. HarperCollins published Pax, Journey Home, the sequel to Sarah's 2016 original this month, September 2021, which is great news for Mr. Sharp. I will be able to say once we finish it, and look, there's another book that you can read on your own if you're interested in 
more of their journey. And I'm so excited. Like there's nothing like read aloud on this planet, sharing a book with a bunch of kids in a classroom and having those conversations. And I believe that kids in my class will remember our reading aloud of Pax for the rest of their life. The book is structured in alternating points of view. The first chapter belongs to Pax, and then we hear from Peter, and the narrative takes turns showing us how each grows and develops and is impacted by war in the absence of the other. War is disruptive, war is not nurturing, war doesn't generate, it destroys. Peter's chapters were harder because for me, I am really interested in how wounded kids react, how they carry on and how they attempt to heal their wounds. I'm not the writer who writes about kids, the damage happening to kids. As a writer, I'm more interested in what they do afterwards. So I want to be really respectful of kids who have been wounded or have had losses in this way. Peter has just had such a hard life. Right, like, you know, from his mother's death to his father being so distant and, I guess, gruff. And, and like, Peter needed Pax as much as Pax needed Peter. And I think that is what makes those characters bond so special is I don't know if either one of them could have survived without the other one. There's a scene in the first book where Peter talks about his last counseling appointment and how that did not go well, and how relieved his dad was when he said he was never going back. The therapist had asked Peter if he ever got angry. No, he said quickly, never. A lie. And then he'd gotten off the floor and taken a single green apple Jolly Rancher from the brass bowl by the door, exactly the way he did at the end of every session. That was the deal the kind-eyed therapist had made with him. Whenever he'd had enough, he could take a candy and the session would be over. And left. But outside, he'd kick the candy into the gutter, and on the way home, he told his father he wasn't going back again. His father hadn't argued. In fact, it had seemed a relief to him. Just was like, no, help him go back. He needs this. It's going to help him. Like, struggling through this session is progress. So I think that seeing what's going on in Peter's head through these two books. As a parent, it's eye-opening. Like, how are my kids doing? They say they're fine and we talk about things, but are they? Are they okay? Especially now, right? Like, our kids have gone through this pandemic and we have no idea what the long-term side effects are going to be and results of it, not just with, with this awful disease, but with you know, being in a mask and missing school and being in and out of school and worrying about getting the grandparents sick. And there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's easy to just brush it off and think everything is okay. But it's hard to know if it really is. I used to think I wrote four children and the word four meant, here you go, habit, you know, gift. And now I realize I write four children because they can't do it themselves. I tell stories for children meaning I'm in their place and I'm saying this is how it feels. So the best thing any reader could say to me after reading a book is, your book said what I was feeling. So I hope that Peter, although not a lot of us have had that much loss or been displaced because of war, but in general, you know, he just, he's been wounded, he's had loss, 
and he closes up and then he has to open up. So often when I read a book, I think about my students and the kids that I teach and like the kid that I want to pass it to. The first time that I read Pax, uh, I don't know if this is selfish, but I just thought about myself as a kid and I thought about how much I would have loved this story. A rural kid in a small town, you know, we don't talk about our feelings, we don't really talk about anything, we just play sports and go to school and we're not really, I don't guess, permission to feel. And this book, just watching Peter try to figure out who he is and what matters in this journey he's on, I just thought about how much I would have loved this book and the impact it would have had on me as a 10 or 11 or 12 year old. Peter is finding his way back to Pax in a land ravaged by war. But which war? Which land? The book exists in something that feels a lot like contemporary America, but nothing is named. And that was on purpose. It's hard to care about all the things we have to care about. I didn't want them to be able to say, oh, this is the Civil War, this happened a long time ago, or it happens in the future, or it happens in another country. I tried to make it so that anyone who read it would find enough to clue into, to say, oh gosh, that could happen to me tomorrow, to my home tomorrow. And the foxes are part of that. Foxes thrive on six continents in all kinds of communities, cities, towns, woods, you know, villages. It could happen anywhere. And there's a whole page, I think, in the book dedicated to one sentence that says, just because it didn't happen here doesn't mean it isn't happening. I don't want anyone to take comfort in the idea that this happened somewhere else to someone else at another time. For my students, growing up where they do in a small town in Michigan, war is such a foreign thing, right? War happens in, in the Middle East. And World War II happened in Europe, and it happened in Japan. Like, things don't happen where we are. And to see this book gives us such a first-hand view of being right in the middle of, of everything. And I think just giving kids a room to talk about it and to think about it and the book does the work, right? Like the kids don't always necessarily need a teacher to ask them a million questions or to make a book about learning and all about all this extra stuff. My biggest job in a book like this is to kind of stay out of the way. Yep, you're not allowed to go say this is historical. You're just not allowed, sorry. That's why Vola lives the way she lives, so we couldn't track her. Vola is a loner who takes Peter in. She's dealing with trauma from the last war, and she and Peter form a strong bond throughout the first book, which carries into book two. Right now, Peter's two role models are two males that aren't really going to have the qualities he's going to need. His father and his grandfather. They are a little closed off. So it's good that he meets Vola, who's fighting the same thing he's fighting, which is, I've been hurt, I'm isolating... But he comes to understand through being with her and through growing strong with her that he needs to set out. So now he really sets out on the journey. And along the way, there are larger and larger challenges and tougher challenges. But he continues to commit, as the hero does, until they get together and he has to make his real decision. Does he want that fox back? What does he really want for the fox? And I think he's able to make the right decision. 
And we haven't even spoken yet about packs. And the more I studied foxes, the more blown away I was by what an amazing creature this is, how smart they are, what a rich emotional life they seem to have, the capabilities that foxes have. They're just amazing. So the more I learned about them, the more I realized, oh, I have to treat packs as a full character with his own motives. And that was a revelation for me. And they have what we would call friends in their own species. But foxes, like humans, cross species. That's why I thought the fox was a really wonderful character to choose because it's so much like an adolescent. My readers, they are known to form bonds with other animals and of course with with humans too, uh, across species. That's pretty amazing. Was Pax always going to be a fox? I interviewed a lot of animals. And I wanted the one that most represented my readership. And foxes are agile the way my readers are. They look to me like a youthful animal all the time. As I said, they form bonds, really close family and friends bonds, and even go outside species. And they're adaptable. One of the things that the kids love so much is animals have these souls and these hearts that are a lot like ours. And I think that's what's really special about the voice of Pax is that he seems to be exactly what he would be if the boy had a fox and they went on this journey. And they also seem to have a sense of humor. Besides being clever, they're playful. So anyway, there was no question once I started interviewing animals, there was no question it was going to be a fox. So I went to a person who actually has a master's degree in red foxology, if that's a thing, and spent quite a bit of time picking his brain. And how did Sarah come up with Pax's voice? I wrote Pax as though Pax were human, but were not self-reflective or neurotic. It makes me laugh when I say it, but it's true. Pax never thinks, how do I look doing this? Is someone going to make fun of me for this? Am I doing the right thing? He feels what he feels. He's motivated by what he's motivated by. He doesn't worry about how it reflects back on him. I think part of the idea with the fox, you know, in packs, sometimes learning from animals and animal characters are a little bit less threatening to us, especially to young people. Having these characters essentially have human sentience or beyond even human sentience as they're struggling to kind of overcome these challenges, we're able to address all of these big challenges that we face from an environmental perspective, through the eyes of these animals. That's Philippe Cousteau, oceanographer and environmental activist, and yes, grandson of Jacques Cousteau. Philippe recently co-authored with Austin Aslan, The Endangereds, an A-team-style adventure where the heroes are endangered species. The book stars the polar bear Nukilik as she joins a hyper-intelligent rescue team staffed by an orangutan, a narwhal, and a pangolin as they embark on daring environmental rescue missions. We wanted the backstories of each of these animals to be rooted in, like, the real challenges that they're facing. I mean, there's a reason, you know, we chose polar bears. They're kind of the poster children for, you know, Arctic decline and sea ice loss and climate change. Pangolins are largely unknown, but one of the most trafficked animals in the world. They're kind of like a armadillo, anteater, you smash them together, maybe with a fox to get back to packs. 
but they're amazing animals and they're highly, highly trafficked and they're, you know, highly endangered. And then a narwhal, we had to get something from the ocean for my background as an ocean advocate and narwhals are the unicorn of the sea. And then orangutans, I spent time filming a series for CNN in, in Sumatra, and they are also highly endangered because of deforestation. And so we pulled all these animals together and and really wanted there to be real backstories to how they came together, to what was, you know, put them into to the situation where they were rescued. Philippe and Austin wrote The Endangered to help kids engage with the major environmental crises that we face today. In the last 40 years, so in my lifetime, we've lost half the world's biodiversity. And young people are very familiar with these issues. They see all this news and they see all these things. And young people are frightened and worried about these types of issues. In some ways, Philippe says, the hyperintelligence that the animals receive in the endangered, the result of a serum administered at their headquarters in the Galapagos, reflects other kinds of enlightenments. So when we're introduced to the characters in the first book, all of them have the sentience except for the polar bear. And so it was it was kind of fun to tell the story of Nikilik and her kind of emergence into this new world and what that would look like. And it's kind of fearful and, and scary to kind of have your perspective widened and opened up in such a way. But she was in a way a metaphor, I think, for all of us as we start to wake up to the challenges that we're facing in the world, which can be very scary. This morning I was reading through the latest UN report on on climate change, and it makes for some pretty grim reading about where we're headed. And some frustrating reading considering we've had decades of warnings and chosen to ignore them, or worse yet, chosen to actively and willfully deny the reality. And we're paying the price already. I live in California and we've got this Dixie fire up north and it's it's devastating. So there's a lot of urgency around these types of issues and, and you know the endangers was really something that was designed to to again spur on a new generation. How should writers introduce young readers to such serious real-world issues like war or climate change? It was really important to us that it would be fun. It was important to us that first and foremost we wanted to have some humor come through because these are very serious issues. We didn't want to be too earnest. If people aren't having fun and they're not joining us because they're having fun, then we've failed. Passion and excitement and adventure need to be part of any good story. Those kinds of universal rhetorical truths about storytelling that I drew from working on Endangered and how we could tell stories that could make kids excited, but then also try and give them a little bit of agency. PAX 2 is filled with passion and adventure, sentient creatures, and missions of rescue. Sarah puts Peter through difficult and painful experiences and writes into him a full range of emotions. Colby says that characters like Peter can be healthy ciphers for young readers, especially for kids who aren't able to easily share their feelings. Feelings are yours, right? Peter has these things that are in his heart, but other things he's not ready to share. And, you know, we don't have to share everything. Like, how I feel is mine. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about reading stories. We get to peel back the layers and know exactly what's going on in a very complicated and brilliant boy in a way that we would never get a chance to experience unless we were maybe a counselor or a therapist. And that's really beautiful to have everything peeled back and see just his raw, honest, true feelings. It's 
one of the great pleasures of being a reader. When she wrote Pax, Sarah wasn't planning a sequel. Pax Journey Home came out of conversations over the years with readers, readers who kept asking her what she intended by that ending. Pax shot away toward the brush line. Then he turned back to look at his boy. Peter felt tears roll down his face, but he didn't wipe them away. Pax sprang back. He whimpered, licking at the tears. Peter pushed him down. He found the crutch and levered himself upright. No, I don't want you to stay. I'll always leave the porch door open. But you have to go. Pax looked toward the brush and then back at his boy's face. Peter dug into his pocket and pulled out the toy. He lifted it. Pax raised his head, his eyes trained on Peter's hand, and Peter hurled the plastic soldier over the brush and into the woods, as far away as he could. Sometimes, the apple rolls very far from the tree. But you have to say what happened. You didn't say, you said what Peter did, but you didn't say what Pax did. And then it ends with what the words, sometimes the apple rolls very far from the tree. There's so much wonder in the ending. There's so much possibility and hope. Some kids hate it. Some kids get it. Some kids love it. And I think that's what's magical about it. It's, it's surprising, but it's true. And it feels so real. And I think that sometimes that's the only way to, to end a story. And I did that on purpose because I know that Pax is a really hard read. And I felt all the readers who did that hard work, who cried through this book, they get to imagine the ending they want. They get to imagine that even though Peter says, go away, go live your life, if what they wanted to imagine is Pax bounding over and refusing to leave, good, you can do that. You've earned it. But then the more I, you know, heard these questions from them, the more I found myself imagining what happened. I asked Sarah what she could tell us about the second book. One year has passed. The war is over. Peter has suffered even more loss. His dad has died during the war, although under mysterious, kind of mysterious circumstances. He has become more closed. Man, he lost so much. So he's trying to rebuild a life, and then he's with Vola. She gets a little too close and suggests that they might be a family. So he takes off. At the same time, Pax has had kits with Bristle, and he's just kind of in the opposite space. The world is open and beautiful, and they're thrilled with having kits and exploring the world. But in fact, the world isn't quite as, as perfect as it should be because this war has contaminated the water. So now they both have to deal with this. I just wanted to make sure that I don't leave the world saying, okay, destruction, all bad, right? I wanted to show how it could be healed. I take what's left of the warriors, the the military, I reassemble them as water warriors in the second book and they even allow young people Peter's age to come and help and go clean up the water and restore the water and that that's a really powerful thing that you can take the same forces that destroyed 
something, those forces could be marshaled to rebuild it. This passage from Pack's journey home illustrates Sarah's point. Peter's grandfather ends up saying, warriors are, oh, it's about power, not a bunch of do-gooders. Well, that is not what I believe. Fola said it in a completely neutral voice, no challenge, no judgment on someone who believes something else. Peter had come to appreciate Vola's technique. It diffused things, let the other person hold a different side without asking for a fight. Still, he felt his belly muscles tighten in a way they hadn't in a year. But then Vola picked up the pitcher of cider and refilled the glasses. Before she set the pitcher back, she held it up. This was a gift, she said, and Peter relaxed. She was moving away from the subject. It was made from the clay around here, a local craftsman. I had given him some firewood when he ran out. Peter's grandfather grunted in appreciation. How many years did it take him to learn the trade, I wonder, Fola mused. How many hours to create this piece? How many times has it been useful filling our cups? Peter picked up his fork as his grandfather bent to his food, but Vola wasn't finished. Now think of it. I throw this pitcher against the wall. That is a lot of power I show. But any fool can break something. The power I respect is in the making. She set the pitcher down. She turned to Peter and lifted her glass. And maybe most of all, I respect anyone who chooses to rebuild something. Peter's grandfather stopped chewing. He nodded grudgingly. One of the things that I love most about the new book, Pax Journey Home, is that Peter does not have things figured out at all. Like, I almost was like so sad that he was in such a rough place still. You know, you, the first book ends and, and you hope that everything is going to be okay and he's doing great and he is at peace with things, but you see that he's not. And I think that's really powerful for kids to see that, you know, you can get through something and that doesn't mean you have to be all right. Like so often we want to fix everything right away. And I think kids need to see and understand that it takes time. Young people have a special relationship to animals and the natural world that books like Pax and the Endangered tap into. It doesn't take much for kids to empathize with animals, nor to understand that humans have obligations to the natural world. Grown-ups, on the other hand. It's very difficult to change adult behavior. And that's essentially what we're talking about. I mean, when we start thinking about, like, what are the big things that need to happen in order for us to have a livable planet, a planet we can survive on but thrive on, we need some pretty dramatic political and economic changes in this world. Very difficult thing to do to reach adults get them to change their behavior or perspective. Is it fair to position kids as advocates for their own futures? No. And yet, Philippe says, young people can be remarkably effective. I've had a lot of adults come up to me and say, hey, you know what? My kid's coming home from school every day. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're changing this. And so, you know, our goal is to fundamentally empower young people to go home and influence their parents, influence the adults in their lives. HarperCollins will release book two in the Endangered series in October of this year. We are with the same cast of animal heroes and we find out what happened to Nikilik, our polar bear's mother, and so much more. 
We find ourselves in Central America exploring some issues around the clothing industry, which is one of the biggest polluters in the world. We end up in Hawaii dealing with volcanoes. We're back up in the Arctic. We have some run-ins with sea turtles and albatross and other animals that are what we call hyper. We wanted to unpack a little bit too about if animals did have sentience, like rightfully so, I think a lot of them would be really angry about what we've done to the world. That duality, I think that exists in, you know, obviously exists in society, but exists in all of us. We wanted to explore a little bit. Kids shouldn't have to be their own saviors when we, their grown-ups, are right here alongside them reading IPCC reports, while Flint still doesn't have clean water. But there is a magical age somewhere between 8 and 12 where young people's wonder at the natural world can be galvanized into meaningful engagement with the threats and challenges that humans bring to bear on nature. And it's in this window, too, that the right book at the right time can help a young person make sense of the big feelings that come with adolescence and with unforeseen hardships like global pandemics. Mr. Sharp, the literacy advocate, is also the author of the nonfiction book Game Changer with Donalyn Miller. It's all about book access and the importance of surrounding kids with books everywhere that they are. And kids who are surrounded by books do a lot better in life and in school and become readers when they have books in their classrooms, in their libraries, at home, um, when they have access to public libraries. And the more books that we can put in front of kids and give them time to read the books that they want to read, good things will happen. We hope Mr. Sharp's read aloud of PAX this fall is a rousing success. And we have a wish for all young people returning back to classrooms this September. We hope you get the pleasure of being in a library soon and putting your hand on just the right book, the book that opens up your heart and your mind at the moment when you need it the most. Tell us what you think on Twitter, at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your review could end up in our next newsletter along with quotes, trivia, and updates about new episodes, which you can sign up for by visiting rememberreading.com. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins, Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Vishali Nyack, Lauren Levite, Shannon Cox, and Katie Dutton. Special thanks to editors Donna Bray, Carolina Ortiz, and David Linker. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Nicole Wills. Thanks for listening.